0: This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. My name is Tim Wicks and uh, I've been practicing here at City Center since 2001. Currently I'm the sewing teacher here, I'm going to talk a little bit about sewing. But before I do, I want to thank Anna, Thorne, Artanto for asking me in the name of David our Abiding Abbot, thank you very much for letting me take the Dharma seat today. Zachary Smith was originally scheduled and is having a medical procedure. We send him our warm, good wishes, and hopefully I'll have a chance to hear from him once he fully recovers. And I also always want to uh, thank my teacher, Rinzo Ed Sadison, who's our central abbot right now for his mercy upon my soul. (laughs) and his forgiveness for all of my multitude of uh, unresolved karmic uh, responsibilities that get in the way of my practice as he continues to teach me how to practice in space and time. Uh, So the title of my talk is uh, The Dirty Robe which I'll get to in a minute. Uh, This great practice that we have, it's so wonderful to be back here in the Buddha Hall. I've had a chance to come here a few times for service, to be sitting here during a Dharma talk. It's just wonderful. And this is central to what is one of the main pillars of our practice, which is that it's a dialogue. It's a dialogue that we have with each other, it's a conversation, and it has to be in Sangha that we have that, that conversation, which is where we practice what Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing, where we are with each other in the way that we are being tonight, and um, Speaking, talking words, of course, is, is part of that conversation, uh, that dialogue. But also being in close proximity to each other, which is something that we're just starting to be able to do more right now, uh, is very important part of our practice. A lot is said uh, just by being around each other. This is a central part of our, our Zazen training, is sitting together other Buddhist practices. It's not stressed quite so much to sit in a group, but we sit downstairs in the zendo with each other, we face the wall, but there's a lot where where, where our our, our senses are being fine-tuned and trained. We can tell a lot about what's going on with the other people that we're sitting with. This is a dialogue. We read, of course, uh, not always. There's sometimes where reading is not allowed during Seshin. Um, but in this way, uh, reading, we converse with uh, our ancestors, the people to whom we're so grateful to, for having brought this practice to not just us, but to Japan and to China and other parts of the world. We also write as a part of this dialogue. I don't write, except I write my Dharma talks. Um, But I've noticed we're a little in our Zen practice, the people who do write, Norman Fisher comes to mind. We're a little embarrassed about writing because what we're writing about is basically unspeakable. It's beyond words. And in fact, our uh, first transmission story we read is uh, when the Buddha held up an Udumbara flower and Maha his disciple, smiled. This silent dialogue that was going in that told the Buddha that, that here was his first transmittee. He was his first ancestor. So this is a wordless dialogue, a wordless understanding, transmission, face-to-face of the Dharma. I actually looked up the Udumbara flower. I'm surprised that I hadn't done that before. It's a tiny, tiny little flower. It's actually very small. So I thought, oh, uh, Mahakashapa must have been standing like really close to the Buddha um, when he held it up. Um, I like to Google when talking about our Zen writing, this, this thing that's sort of done a lot, but slightly frowned upon. Um, uh, I've I've I, I Google Zen writing, and there's like 32 million entries for Zen writing. And just for the sake of comparison, I Google Tibetan Buddhist writing. There's two million, uh, and Theravadan writing are silent cousins. There's less than a million uh, Theravadin uh, entries, Theravadin uh, Buddhist writings. So, this thing that we're not supposed to really be doing, but we really do a lot of. Uh, and this, though, uh, Bodhidharma, our first disciple in China, sat for nine years facing the wall, which is one of the reasons why it is that we sit facing the wall, to connect with him. Our first ancestor in Japan, however, Dogen Zenji, prolific writer, no, uh, no shame there. Uh, he, wrote prolifically, and we are very grateful that he did. We have as a way of our conversation, a part of our dialogue, these Dharma talks like I'm doing right now. And uh, recently Heather Yaruso uh, asked us from the Dharma seat, not to be fooled by the constriction of gender identity. What I heard from her Dharma talk, and this is always you know, where some of the problems occur, but also where the creativity occurs. <laughs> what I heard from her Dharma talk was that gender fluidity is actually a lived example of non-dualism, that it's sort of a doorway uh, to our understanding, to an understanding uh, of emptiness for us. Michael McCord, uh, I think it was a week ago or so, uh, he asked us to integrate fear as a part of our practice. Anna Thorne, our tonto, uh, what I heard from Anna's talk, which, you know, might be totally wrong, <laughs> but what I heard was, uh, to investigate delusion, not as something to be discarded, but as a phenomena that is a part of our practice and, uh, to be, uh, integrated in our practice. And this, just this last uh, Saturday, uh, we had Greg Snyder and Laura O'Loughlin, two Dharma siblings of our abiding abbot, um, whose work at uh, Berkeley, uh, at Berkeley, at Brooklyn Zen Center, uh, has been held up by many sanghas as an example of how to do the difficult work of acknowledging racism and sexism and homophobia and, the, and how they're barriers to our practice, barriers to our liberation. It talked about how it is that it's important to work with conflict aversion, to be aware of it, to be able to name it when it's coming up, to uh, investigate it, to study it as Dogen asked us to do, investigate, investigate, investigate. They asked us to be aware of the internal tightening that is based in conversation on our desire for order in our practice when we're practicing in an utterly disordered world. I heard them asking us to be aware of our tendency for exile, both of others who we feel are not doing things the way it is that they need to be done. But also of ourselves. We exile ourselves. We exile ourselves through shame. And there's been lots of talk about shame in recent Dharma talks. I've noticed this internal policing mechanism that we have that's not conducive to interbeing because it's really Shame is really about isolation and separation. They, uh, Greg and and, and Laura gave the example of the lotus flower and I'm a little embarrassed that I I never even thought of this, but they gave the example of, you know, some of us like want to kind of pull the lotus flower up out of the mud that we talk about is, the sustenance for uh, the lotus flower and how it is that, of course, we don't want to do that. We know what will happen if we do that. The flower will wilt and die. The flower actually needs the mud. It needs this muck and dirt and difficulty. And so that brings me to the title of my talk today, which is The Dirty Road. I washed my ocasa for today. (laughs) And, uh, you know, before COVID, I was pretty much washing my robe approximately once, once a year. Uh, not all of you know that we make our ropes. we sew them ourselves, the, the rakasus and these, these okases, the big ropes, we, we make them ourselves. And we are extremely grateful to Suzuki Roshi, first of all, but also to the abbots. Uh, over the years who have continued to uh, support this practice of sewing Buddha's rope. But this practice of ours, it's actually not a Soto Zen practice. Um, it's kind of looked on with a little bit of uh, just, uh, not really disdain, but sort of disdain. <laughs> by by official Sōtō Shu, the institution in Japan, the Sōtō School. Um, This practice was uh, recovered by uh, Kodo Sawaki Roshi in the early part of the 20th century, and it was recovered from some nuns who had continued this practice who were Shingon nuns, and they were uh, disciples of Jian Onko, who was an 18th century Shingon priest. Um, and uh, that, that Shingon is, uh, Shingon Buddhism is, is esoteric uh, Buddhism. It's, it's tantric Buddhism. And um, when, when I found this out, a lot of uh, elements of our, our robe practice Uh, made sense to me. The robe is made of small and large panels. The large panels are wisdom panels and the small panels are the ignorance panels and we sew them together. And uh, Dogen, um, who wrote two fascicles on uh, the robe, speaks about the, wearing of the, the practice of wearing the robe like this. Know without doubt that as soon as you shave your head and wear the robe, you are guarded by all Buddhas. With this protection, you fully realize unsurpassable enlightenment. Thus, you are giving offerings by humans and demigods. And I would add, you're giving gifts to humans and demigods by wearing this robe, by being connected in this way to the Sangha. In the morning, we put the robes on our heads and we chant the robe chant. And Dogen asks us to, while we're chanting the robe chant, to picture your teacher who gave you the robe. Because all of our robes are given to us by our teachers. And that's how it's been. unbroken line, we hope, we think, since the time of the Buddha. To picture your teacher and to picture the Buddha as you're saying, the rope chant. Blanche Hartman was the first abbess of San Francisco Zen Center, and she was my uh, sewing teacher. And she she taught me um, somewhat reluctantly Uh, to be a sewing teacher. She would have uh, preferred, she wasn't my root teacher and she would have preferred uh, one of her root students to uh, have been, you know, the sewing teacher that she ended up training the most, but uh, they were busy doing other things. And so uh, reluctantly she, she Taught me for over a decade, and she never said, "Tim, I'm really reluctant to teach you about sewing." <laughs> That's not that wasn't her way, but because I got to be in close proximity for over a decade with her, it was pretty clear to me that that was the case. Um, it's not that she didn't like me. Um, most of her students were people of color and LGBTQI uh, people and women, and I was a straight white dude uh, coming there, uh, but. She came to like me a great deal, and I think loved me. And at some point early on, it was a couple of years into her training me, it became clear. We were in the dining room. We were talking, me and one of her group students. And it became clear that her robe needed to be repaired. And so um, as Blanche had taught us, uh, this other student uh, and myself agreed to repair Blanche's robe and we were gonna have to wash it. And at some point the root student was busy and, and couldn't do it. So I ended up doing the whole thing, washing it and and repairing it. Um, and uh, when I brought it to Blanche a few days later, um, she did this typical Blanche thing. When I said to her, oh, here's your robe. I washed it and, and mended it for you. She did this typical Blanche thing where she put her hands on her head. She was very embarrassed that I as not her root student had washed, had, had done this intimate thing uh, and washed her robe. Um, she was horrified, you know, uh, even though after washing my robe, after it not being washed for a couple of years, my robe was much dirtier than her robe was. Um, so this, this this process that she was at first embarrassed about her dirty robe and her neglected robe, but she, she thought it was neglected. It had a couple of open seams on it. Uh, ended up bringing us uh, together in a small way, both as individuals, but also in this practice, this practice of making Buddha's robe as a part of Sangha, as a part of joining together in the community of practitioners. So my robe was, as I said, much dirtier than Blanche's was. Uh, it, it was probably, you know, three, maybe four. Well, let's be honest, it could be five years <laughs> since I washed my robe, but it's definitely a lot longer than five, okay? I want to be clear on that. And in those uh, five years, that soilness, the dirt, that I'm, what I'm referring to as dirt, the soiled. Part of the robe is basically Tassajara, our 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 monastery mm-hmm. in the Ventana wilderness. Uh, city center. Um, wearing my robe at home on Zoom, uh, it, it, it's it, 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 it's it, it's a mark of my training over the last five years, during which I've been Shusso for student. Uh, I've been in residence here at City Center and at Tassahara. Um This soiledness that I was washing out um, is uh, a part of my being in conversation with this practice. I need to give a demonstration on rope washing too once I can come to the Dining room with everyone. It doesn't take very long, but I've noticed that some of you might benefit from that. <laughs> Only takes about 10 minutes, but it's a ceremonial way of washing Buddha's robe that Blanche taught me. Um, so, Greg and Laura on uh, Saturday, uh, they spoke very importantly about the word justice. And I was surprised to hear that mentioned because uh, we don't really talk about justice very much in our Zen practice. It's not really in the canon justice. Ethical behavior, compassion, even uh, fairness is brought up, especially in the Vinaya, which are monastic rules. Shingi deals with that, for us, our version of it. But justice is not really brought up that much. And they spoke about the word justice, meaning coming into alignment with the cosmos, the ordering of things, justice as a way of harmonizing with all things. And all three of those things right there that are justice are the central intentions of our practice. Coming into alignment with the cosmos, ordering of all things, and to harmonize with all things. And that is justice. That is also our Zen practice. We spoke about karma and its uh, Latin it's not really root, but Latin uh, parallel cr- uh, crime. They connected the Latin word crime with karma. And they spoke about how uh, crime, crime, the Latin root means uh, actions and future and the connection between the two and how that's true for how it is that we understand karma. I heard them talking about how it is that we live in conflicts. Right now we have what they said was a warlike stance. We, have, we live in a warlike stance. And of course, in this conflict, we can't run away from it. The conflict just continues. Every morning in this room, we take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. As we do with each stitch, it's a part of our sewing teaching. Uh, we're taught by me or one of my fellow sewing teachers to take refuge with each stitch. In Japanese, it is namu kie butsu. And the kie part, the middle part, means to plunge into refuge without any resistance. But there's an element also in taking refuge of returning home. And that's what many of us want is we want it to be in a safe place. But taking refuge and returning home means coming back to home as it is, with everything that is there. It's not just the wisdom it's not just it's not without the ignorance and the delusion it means coming home also to that it means coming home to this firm place this cushion this ground with all of the karmic responsibilities that are sitting here with us for us here in san francisco right here in this building at city center It means coming home to the people who were here before we were here. These are the Ramitush Ohlone people. And what I've just done is called land acknowledgement. And land acknowledgement is frowned upon by some Native Americans because it's criticized as an end in itself. And, um, you know, it's fine to, our lost tanto so Nancy said, she doesn't care if it's performative. You gotta start somewhere. And it is a good place to start, but it's essential uh, to continue that dialogue, to continue the discussion, to go further, to spend time on a regular basis, to have others to speak to and, We're set up with those right here, if you're a residential. Uh, I don't live here, but I have someone here who I speak with on a regular basis about my relationship with the Ramatush Ohlone people who were here before and who are still in the world. By having a regular conversation, a regular discussion with other specific people to speak to about this, it helps me to proceed towards right action. And that's different things for different people. It's only in this, action, in this interaction uh, that I can find a way forward from what sometimes seems like a completely hopeless um, and immobilizing reality. So this robe is, uh, it's a banner, these robes that we wear, the okesas, the rakasus, they're originally meant as banners, and they're actually, it's sometimes called a banner. This is the banner of liberation. It's referred to sometimes. It's a whole list of names. It's called uh, the nioho A way of sewing, which is how we, our tradition of sewing it, nioho A means, The Robe According to the Dharma. It's a flag of the teaching. The original reason why it is that we started wearing robes was decided by the Buddha and Ananda and a follower of the Buddha called King Bimbisara, who one day was, depending on which writing you read, was either on an elephant, a cart or a horse. And off in the distance, he saw someone coming towards him who he thought was a disciple of the Buddha. And by the time he, I prefer elephant, by the time he got off his elephant, uh, which I assume, I've never done it, but that takes a little bit of time. This person was a little closer and he saw that it was not a disciple of the Buddha. And so he went to the Buddha, who was with Ananda as usual. And um, he uh, said, uh, could you please have your disciples wear some kind of, Acknowledgement of uh, the fact that they're your disciples so that we know who to go to, to go and talk about the Dharma with. And the Buddha said, absolutely, we must do that. People need to know who to come and talk about the Dharma with. So the Buddha and Ananda, who I like to think of as our first clothing designer, designed the robe, based on the rice paddy, the rice field, the rice, which gives us sustenance as human beings so that we in turn can receive the sustenance of the, uh, the Dharma. We are actually sowing with these small ignorance panels and the large wisdom panels. We're sewing together our ignorance and our karmic responsibilities to our pursuit and development and training in wisdom. These obstacles to our liberation, our ignorance, our delusion, we sow with this deepening uh, uh, training in wisdom. And in so doing, we're not banishing ignorance. We're not exiling ignorance. We all want to come to ...beautiful Buddhism, which uh, is so wise, has got so much wisdom, and we want to get rid of our ignorance, we don't want our ignorance to be here anymore. But that's banishing the soil that provides the nutrient to our wisdom. Because wisdom doesn't actually grow without ignorance, it has, everything has to be compared to something else, and wisdom has to be in uh, opposition to uh, ignorance in order for it to begin the process of being developed and becoming uh, this great practice of ours. Ignorance and delusion actually, actually grow into wisdom. This process, Dogen admonished us to investigate, investigate, investigate. And this is the conversation that we, we have to have and it's scary. As Laura and Greg said on Saturday, it's messy. It's a messy discussion that we have to have, a messy conversation. But we shouldn't be afraid to be messy. We should support us. We should support each other in our messiness. Because truly integrating ignorance with wisdom, so that wisdom... Can broaden our ignorance, or our, our, our wisdom, can only be done in Sangha, in this temple, in this world. And if we can do that, that's where, that's where it is that healing begins to happen. Healing can only happen when I understand your suffering and you understand how it is that I'm injured. It has to be both of us together working as wisdom and delusion work together. And it's this healing that Tova in her talk recently spoke about and referred to as being mended. Thank you all very much for your attention and your time wonderful to be with you all thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center our Dharma talks are offered free of charge and this is made possible by the donations we receive your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma for more information please visit sfzc.org and click giving may we fully enjoy the Dharma